here at, at Faith this year. I'm going to read our, uh, our passage to begin. It's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Y'all can stay seated this morning. You're, you're good. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I'll be reading from the NIV. You can feel free to follow along if you wish. Um, but hear now the, the word of the Lord that we will look at together this morning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. So every year around this time, um, all over the world, people participate in something that, if we, are, if we are to believe the statistics, ends up resulting in what might be considered a massive collective failure. Despite having the best of intentions and, and even with the strongest, most pure motivations, somewhere around 80 to 90% of people who make New Year's resolutions will not see them through to a successful end. In fact, here in the United States, it's estimated that only 9% of resolution makers will finish what they begin on January 1st. 23% of people will give up on their resolutions within the first week. And nearly half will drop out by the end of the first month. A lot of these less than encouraging statistics are derived from, from resolutions that focus on either physical or material or sometimes relational goods. What this, of course, means is that all your fitness apps are tattletailing on you and they're pulling that data out there. But I wonder how much of a correlation this data would have if we looked at it in relation to our spiritual resolutions as well. How many of us have looked toward a new year and thought something kind of like, well, I'm, this year I'm going to pray more, only never really to come up with a plan and, and to kind of fumble at the beginning and never really get momentum to get things started. I personally have lost count of how many read-the-Bible-in-a-year plans that I have tried over the course of my life, but I can tell you for certainty how many I've ever completed with a great deal of, of perfection or success, and that's because the number is zero. Some of you have probably made resolutions to serve more or volunteer more or give back more or do more of this or less of that, and then sometime around December you, re you realize that, oh, you're, you're out of time, and, uh, and here's the end of the year. And I guess, as they, as they say, there is always next year. So what I will not be doing on this final Sunday of 2023 is telling you how to make a good New Year's resolution to make you a better Christian in 2024. I think the data would suggest that maybe resolutions are not such a great idea for our strategy for, for discipleship or for growing in our faith. Instead, I want us to consider making a New Year's confession to make a New Year's confession. I want us to enter the New Year being very clear what it is that we believe as, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, what do we believe about, to be true about ourselves? What do we believe to be true about God? And how do those beliefs impact the way we live? What do we believe to be true about the way we should live our lives? 
To do this, we're going to be taking a look at that, those verses from Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to see how pulling these truths out from that passage can help us shape our faith and confidently say, confidently believe, confidently confess these things in the new year. That we were all once lost in sin. But we are now, by grace, alive in Christ. And we have God-ordained good work to do, and we will do our humble best to do it. We were all lost in sin. We are now, by grace, alive in Christ. We have God-ordained good work to do, and we'll do our humble best to do it. So we're going to dive in, take a closer look at what it means to confess these things here in 2024. In chapter 2 of his letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers, including all those who now follow Jesus, he's talking to Christians in this letter, and he wants them to remember, we were all once lost and dead in our sin. Again, in verse 1, he told them, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. When I was in middle school, uh, my parents had two, two key rules that I had to follow uh, at all times. Right? One of them was, was my curfew. Right? At the end of the day, we would arrange, you know, hey, you need to be home at such and such a time. You need to be through the door at such and such a time. And that rule had to be followed. The second rule was in relation to my cell phone, and that was if my parents called me on that Generation 1 Nokia brick with the foot pad, you know, over the keys protecting it, if I got that phone call, I had better answer the phone or at least follow up a call shortly thereafter if I had missed that call. Be home on time, answer the phone if mom calls. Those, those were the law. Those were the commandments of my, of my teenage life. But one night, <clears throat> I, had, I had plans to, to go over to a friend's house and watch a movie, and so he was just down the street. I walked down the road and, and went into his house, and we were messing around and, and got the movie started a little late. And uh, I realized as the movie's going that, I'm not, that it's not going to wrap up at 10, which was my, my, my time for my curfew that night. It's not going to wrap up at 10 o'clock, and I'm not going to be home on time. And instead of doing something reasonable, like pulling my phone out and saying, hey, Mom, can I have like 30 extra minutes or something like that, I just decided I get to do what I want. I'm going to be just fine. I'll, I'll get home when I get home, no big deal, and I, and I went ahead and did whatever I thought was best. So the movie comes to an end, and it's time to go home. I pull my jacket back on, I slip my hand in my pocket, and, uh, and pull out the phone, and, and I realize that it's, it's well past 10, it's, it's about 10.30, 10.45, but that's not actually the first thing I noticed, because the time on my phone had been pushed up to the corner by a notification that said I had missed not one, not two, but four calls from my mom. The memory of my slow, doomed walk back home, down the street, is what comes to mind when I read, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. This, but on a far more, far more consequential scale, is what the Apostle Paul is describing in these three verses. It's not a physical death, but it's a sense of hopelessness, an inevitable punishment, a realization that your rebellion has a cost, and that you cannot save yourself from the judgment to come. Our sins and our wrongdoings, both premeditated and spur of the moment, they contribute to a spiritual death and our alienation from God. And so if you're going to understand what it means to, to follow Christ, if you're going to be honest about your need for a Savior, you first have to begin from this place of admitting that you need what Jesus has to offer because of the situation, the circumstances that you're in, in reality of your sin. 
It's uncomfortable to dwell on the topic of our obedience, but we can't appreciate all that God has done for us if we don't first come to terms with the truth of the disaster that we have made for ourselves in our own life. Something is terribly wrong between us and God. Something is terribly wrong between us and God, and we need to be able to see that so that we can then see the work that he has been about to make all things right again. We have to be able to confess that we were all once lost in sin. Now, in verses 1 through 3, Paul briefly outlines what being lost in sin looks like, what being dead in our transgressions kind of looks like in a day-to-day. First, he says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins when we followed the ways of this world. Now, Scripture is full of warnings that worldliness can lead us to living a life uh, that, that means we are pursuing things that are incompatible, that are, that are completely against the will and the commands and the values of God. The world beckons us to indulge in things like greed and corruption and oppression, immorality, materialism, neglect of our neighbors in need. Worldliness is in conflict with godly, righteous life because it encourages us to believe that we can make it on our own, that we're just fine the way we are, that we are powerful, that we are in control. And in fact, when it comes right down to it, worldliness wants to tell us that God works for us, that God is here to do what we want want him to do, and that we don't need to be concerned with the consequences of our actions. If you tend to hurt people around you more than you tend to help them, then you might have a problem with worldliness. If you care more about proving that you are right than you do about proving your love for those that are in need, then you might have a problem with worldliness. If your goal each day is to satisfy your own desires and to make sure that you always get what you want, even if it means disregarding the clear teachings of Jesus Christ, then you most definitely have a problem with worldliness. If you're hearing these questions, these scenarios, and in your heart you immediately feel a desire to reject them as a way to evaluate yourself, if your immediate, if your immediate reaction is, is to, to, to put up a wall and say, no, I don't want to think about those, or those aren't me, or I don't even want to entertain the possibility that, that I need to process my life through those questions, then you might be clinging to worldliness far more than you're clinging to the idea of God's righteousness. A second struggle we face is against the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, we have a struggle against a very real enemy, against Satan, against the devil and the demonic forces that stand with him. And, and, and scripture is, un, uh, is unapologetic about this being a very true and real thing that we have to struggle against. The Bible regards Satan as a very real and dangerous threat to humanity. And we are told that Satan, and that's, that's what it means by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan delights in corrupting our connection with God. Satan's work, his entire purpose, flourishes in those moments where we embrace worldliness and embrace disobedience. That's his entire goal, is to lead us down those paths. But before we excuse ourselves and say, well, my struggle against evil is because of this enemy, my struggle against evil is all because Satan, it's, it's Satan's fault, Paul clearly declares that our sinful actions are, are affecting all of us, and, and it's because we are indulging in them. We have all suffered from embracing the ways of this world and, 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 the, and the influence of evil in conjunction with our own disobedience, with the, with the things that grow from our own hearts. As it says in verse 3, from gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following our own desires and our own thoughts. 
selfishness, self-centeredness, unchecked cravings and addictions and insatiable desires to consume. We sin in our flesh when we objectify the things that are good so that we can satisfy our own burning desire for that selfish gain. Right? We sin in our flesh when we objectify things that are perfectly fine and good all over the world and yet we want to consume them and make them our own and make our entire lives about making sure we get what we want all the time. We become gluttonous and lustful and give ourselves over to feelings like greed and anger and hatred. And when you lay it all out like this, it becomes frightfully easy to see just how dire our situation and sin really is. We are attacked from without, all around, from the world. We are attacked from beyond by, by an evil power that we feel helpless and hopeless to stand up against. And then we are attacked even from within ourselves by our own fallen and corrupted desires. Sin has caused us to possess a deeply broken and flawed nature, which Paul bluntly describes as deserving of wrath in verse 3. We have all done things that place us in the righteous path, or in the, in, in the, right, in the path of God's righteous judgment. This is perhaps where the truth we find in Scripture clashes most with what the world would tell us to believe about ourselves because the world wants us to think you're just fine on your own. You're just fine the, the, the way you are by yourself. But, but Scripture tells us that we don't get to define what is good and what is right and what is perfect about ourselves. The creation does not dictate to the creator the, how things are going to work. Yes, all people are made in the image of God, and because of that truth, people are inherently they inherently have a reason to love and be loved. There, there is goodness in being created in the image of God. But the terrible tension that we find within Scripture is that despite our glorious origins, despite being that special creation of the Lord, we are not flawless. We are not free to be whatever we want to be. We are slaves to our bondage of sin. We are dead in our transgressions that we choose to continue to commit over and over again. And no matter what we do, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much we're enjoying ourselves, sin leads us down that path of being disobedient and being doomed. This is what it means. This is the weight of what it means to be people who are lost in sin. But then... In verse 4, like a deep gasp of fresh air and, and, or, or lightning bursting forth from the darkness, God changes everything. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are now, we are now by grace alive in Christ those who believe in Christ, who confess him as their savior, who commit their lives to following him by the grace of God are made more alive than they ever have been before. And they are made more alive forevermore. Yes, we all need to spend that time. We all need to get real about the reality of, and the problem of our sin. But God does not leave us to suffer alone in the darkness. God who is rich in mercy, God who raised Christ from the dead, God who gives the gift of faith that allows us to enter this life, that God created a way for us to be saved. And not just saved, 
but recreated into something glorious, into something wonderful, into something amazing in and through Christ. We are now, by the loving grace of God, alive in Christ. And so every day we are given dozens of opportunities by which we might define ourselves. And some are simple. We, you know, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, whether or not we choose to drink coffee or tea in the morning, those are simple ways that we kind of form our, our identity and define ourselves. And then some are more complicated. How we go about our work or, or how we act when we meet people or the relationships we choose to create. But what would it mean, what would it look like if every day you chose to define yourself first and foremost as someone who has been made truly alive in Christ. What would it mean, how would it change your life if every day you made the conscious decision to define yourself as someone who has been made alive in Christ by the grace of God? What might change about your motivations, your decisions, your actions? If you began with the recognition and the appreciation that everything you have, everything you are, is made possible by grace. Undeserved, and an undeserved and eternally precious gift from God. If, by the grace of God, you have been saved, could you be more patient with those around you? If, by the grace of God, you have been saved, could you choose to love others first? to believe the best in them from the beginning instead of judging them or mistreating them or seeking to take advantage of them the moment you meet. If by the grace of God you have been saved, could you live in such a way where, where that grace is such an influence in your life, it becomes obvious to the people that you speak to in a profound and beautiful way. If by the grace of God you have been saved, how might your life be different tomorrow than it is today? How will you go forward and show all of this mercy, all of this love, all of this joy, this gift that God has given you? The Apostle Paul actually has a suggestion for how to do just that, how to show this world that you you are one who has been saved by grace, by the mercy of God. It's that last part of our New Year's confession. We believe that we have God-ordained good work to do, and we'll do our humble best to do it. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, we are not on this earth to make violence or hate or cruelty. We are not supposed to be making things worse. We should not, we must not do evil that that sets people on a path of oppression or destroys others. We are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork. We have been made by God in Christ to do good works in this world. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be uncompromisingly, unceasingly, overwhelmingly committed to the good work that God has gone in advance and prepared for us to do. We should be known by the world for this good work that God sets before us and our passion for pursuing it. If we confess that God, we have God-ordained good work to do, then we commit to leaving no doubt in the minds and the hearts of those that we meet that we see them with the eyes of God, that we love them with the heart of God, and that Christ loves them, and that we believe that Christ died for them just as much as he died for us. The same gospel that takes us from lost to found, from dead to alive, can do so for everyone, for everyone that we meet. Our good work should be made plain as day. We believe that we have God-ordained good work to do. So how do we go about 
doing our humble best to get this done? How do we go about finding the work that God has made already for us to do? This bit is a bit simple, but I, I think you simply ask by, you, 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 you start by simply asking God, what is this good work that he's made, you, made ready for you? And then you go out and try something. Right? You seek the Lord, you, you, you do your best in seeking what he has made for you to do, and then you go out and try something. And maybe you get it right, maybe you get it wrong, maybe you go out and try something and it, you know, it kind of flops or you just don't feel very much connection with it. But if your desire is to do good, I'm willing to bet that your effort will not be wasted. It might take you a couple times to maybe lock in and, and find that good thing that you feel led to do that day. But if you're, you're making a pattern in your life of doing good and interacting with others in that way, I'll bet that effort is never wasted. So I challenge you to ask yourselves and really actually decide. Not only do I, I want you to ask yourselves this, but really actually decide something here. What is one specific good work that God might have prepared for you to do in 2024? What's one specific good work that God might have actually made for you, specifically for you to go out and do in 2024? And then what is one specific way you could take your first step in doing that work? You probably can't answer this right off the bat. You probably can't, you know, can't roll it out right now. But really be thinking about this, praying about this, and pursuing an answer to it that you can take an actionable step on in the coming year. God has promised you already that he's made these good works. They're out there for you to find. They're out there for you to participate in. He wants you to pursue the good work that he has for you in the world. I cannot tell you what God has in store for you to do, but I can promise that he has made and is making you into the perfect person to do it. Not perfect in that you'll be flawless in going about it, but perfect in that he made this work for you to do. He's got a plan for you to go out and impact the world in a positive way with the gospel, with Christ's love, with changing the lives of the people around you. You are his handiwork, so go see what he's created you to do. As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe and we confess that we were once lost in sin, that we are now by grace alive in Christ, and we have God-ordained good work to do, and we will do our humble best to get it done. I hope and pray that this confession leads us to do great things for God's glory in the coming year. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's humbling to read that we were so deeply lost. We were so deeply on our own. We were so deeply disobedient. And then your love shined forth, your love came forth in Christ and saved us and made us something new. And that now we get to live each day not asking the hopeless question of how could we save ourselves, but instead asking the question, how do we get to participate with a God who loves us enough to save us and give us, a, give us good things to do in this world? It's just your gospel, your gospel is amazing. Your love for us is amazing. And I pray that each one of us gathered here this morning would truly seek what you might specifically have for us to do in the coming year. Who could we love in a unique way? Who could we share the truth with in a powerful way? How might we change the world around us simply by doing the good work that God has asked us to do? May we all find good answers to these questions and good ways to live our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.